Hello and welcome to Truth Quest Podcast. This is our Q&A where we answer questions in the lens of Scripture or through the lens of Scripture. Our desire is to know what God's Word says so we can know what to believe. Our first question comes from a question that was asked at our last Q&A. At the very end, Kay asked whether or not God chooses us before the foundations of the world or whether we have free will. And of course, this is a debate among Calvinists and non-Calvinists, whether or not God has predestined someone to be saved or predestined someone to be lost. Did God create everyone but only choose some for grace? Of course, leaving others to then not be chosen at all. Now, I have a couple of scriptures to bring this up, but I just want to kind of talk about this argument in a general way, first of all. Uh, Sometimes, different theological ideas use different definitions for words. And so when I say sovereignty, that God is sovereign, what I mean is that that God is going to do whatever God wants to do. God chooses to do certain things. And God has limited his sovereignty, which is an amazing thing when you think about it. When God gave us a promise and we hang on to that promise, then the sovereignty of God has been limited now. It means that God now does what he chooses, which is to make a promise to us that he will not do certain things and he is trustworthy and will keep his promise forever and ever, the Bible says. So my God is so sovereign that he can allow men to make choices. He created man and I don't believe he created them as robots that have to love him or that can't love him but that he has given man a free will and a choice. And if I choose to love God, God has chosen to love me by creating me and has loved me. God so for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Then God through his sovereignty has allowed me to be able to make a choice. And that's whoever will believe. Then we hear you have Romans 10, which follows Romans 9. Uh, you have the Bible telling us that we are saved by grace through faith not of any works, lest anyone should boast. And that means that faith is not meritorious. That means we don't work for it. So that's what I mean by sovereignty. Someone who is a Calvinist, and there are different shades of Calvinists. There are those that are more radical, and there are those that are less radical. The most radical form of Calvinism says that God determines everything, that he determined everything from the beginning to the end. And if God doesn't determine everything, then God's not sovereign because they somehow see God giving up his sovereign, giving up his choice, his ability to be able to do everything. They see that as God now not being all powerful and God's not going to give up his power. But that's a false dichotomy. God isn't giving up anything he doesn't want to give up and he is still all powerful, but he's made a choice to make a promise and will follow through with what that promise is. So that really extreme form of Calvinism says, God determined me to be here today to pick this cup up to sin. Everything I do is God's sovereignty, but God is not somehow wrong for judging me because I wanted to do the sin. So God made me so that I would do the sin didn't give me any opportunity to repent, but God is totally just in judging me because I want to do the sin. This is compatibilism, all right? So with predestination, predestination for me says that God predestines people to do certain things. 
predestination for them means that God predestines people to do everything. Now, this is the most extreme form of Calvinism, but the thing about Calvinism today is the majority of it is the most extreme form. When you're talking about John MacArthur's view on Calvinism, when you're talking about John Piper, uh, when you're talking about R.C. Sprawl, uh, you're talking about the extreme view on Calvinism, what we would have called lapsectarianism, that extreme view. There are those that have a less extreme view who believe that God created us and we get to make choices, but we're not going to go through our whole life without sinning. And that means we are going to sin and that God has to bring someone to life first before they can ever be born again. And if you believe any other view than that, then they'll call you an Arminianist, a Pelagian, a semi-Pelagian, which is um, Leighton, Dr. Leighton Flowers calls that the boogeyman. They bring that out to say, well, you believe that you have some act in your salvation. And I say, I don't. I don't have any act in my salvation at all. I can't save myself. Jesus did all of the work upon the cross. All I can do is receive it. And by receiving it, that's not work. And they will just kind of say, across the board, without justifying it. The Bible teaches Calvinism, therefore I'm a Calvinist. The Bible teaches predestination, therefore I believe in predestination. But they don't go to the passages to defend their position. And if they go to it, they read it from a very slanted point of view. They'll read that God has predestined us before the foundations of the world, and they'll go, see, there it is. Everything you believe has been predestined. But let's just take a look at that passage and what the Bible says about it. So I'm gonna put it up on the screen here for you. And this is, oh, we're gonna get our, yeah, there it is, okay. And so this is Ephesians 1, one through six. And this is one of the passages that they use to say that God has chosen you and hasn't given you free will. And if you can't tell by now, I believe we have free will. I don't believe in irresistible grace and I don't believe in limited atonement. Limited atonement is super hard to try to prove from scripture because the Bible says Christ died once for all. It says over and over again that there's so many places that he died for all. But you can tell that I believe in a free will and I don't believe that God has predestined some to perish because that would be, in my, from my view, unfair. It would be like I heard the example of someone breeding puppy puppies so we can torture some of them. We would say that guy was a monster. If God is creating people just so we can torture some of them, then what kind of a God is that? But instead, God has created people so they can have a free will. Some decided to fall away from him, and so he made provision through the cross, a fountain of life, to be able to rescue people to come to him and is, is moving within men to rescue them. So here's what it says about predestination in Ephesians. Uh, this, this is verse one of Ephesians chapter, chapter one. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus. So who's he writing to? The saints in Ephesus who are faithful in Christ Jesus. That's the ones he's writing to. He's not writing to just anybody out there. This is, has a context, and context is always important. So he's writing to those who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from our God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be God and um, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. I'd love to talk about that sometime. Just as he has chosen us in him before the foundations of the world. Who has he chosen in him before the foundations of the world? Those who are faithful in Christ. 
God tells us that if we call out to him, we will be saved, that anyone who receives him, he gives the right to become a child of God. You are saved by grace through faith. And so we come to him because we believe. And so God chose before the foundations of the world that anyone who would believe in him could be saved. He's already talking to the faithful, those who have believed in him, those who have trusted in him. They're gonna read this in a completely different way. They're gonna say, see, God has chosen who's ever chosen from before the foundations of the world, and you don't have any say about it. It goes on to say here then, um, chose us in him before the foundations of the world that we should be holy without blame before him having predestined us to adoption as sons by jesus christ to himself who are the ones that are chosen as adoption to sons going back up here to verse one paul an apostle of jesus christ by the will of god to the saints that are in ephesus and faithful in christ the faithful in Christ have been predestined to be adopted as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to God's good pleasure of his will, to the praise and glory of his grace. Another definition that the extreme view of Calvinism will have of grace is a really bizarre definition. I, I see grace as undeserved favor, and God offers you grace and you can receive it. You can approach the throne of God to receive grace in a time of need. When they say they don't believe in the grace of God, what they mean is we don't believe that God chose someone, and I don't know what word to use. I know that an extreme Calvinist doesn't like the word arbitrary. Um, they also don't like to say that God had any reason for hating someone or choosing someone. He just hated someone and loved the unloved another. And so I don't know what other word to use, but arbitrary. So I'll, I'll use the word arbitrary, even though I know they don't like it. I don't want to paint them in the way they don't want to be painted. I also don't believe extreme Calvinists are not believers. I think they're Christians. We're, they're talking about people who believed in Christ. They, they've just got this view that has been around since Augustine, was not in the early part of the church, but been around since then, um, uh, that we are predestined by God. Everything that we do is predestined. It goes on to say, um, having predestined us as adoptions of sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise and glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. So God has made those who are faithful accepted in the beloved. Let's talk about another predestination passage. This is Romans 8, 28, 29. By the way, there's so many passages that we could talk about that, that have been used and misused when it comes to this topic. And I would love to have you bring up one of them and we could talk about them. If there's a certain passage that you've read that makes you think that these extreme points of Calvinists are true, Calvinism is true, I'd love to take a look at them. There's so many, I couldn't bring them all up now or I would have no time to answer your questions. So Romans 8, 28 and 29, it says, and we know all things work together for the good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. So here we have God doing for those who love him, to those who are called according to his purpose, good things for them. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Now, the extreme Calvinists don't like the word foreknew there. They say, and I don't know exactly what they say. I want to make sure I don't put words in their mouth. I don't want to build a straw man to tear down. I would rather teach exactly what they would say and then talk about why we object with that. But they would say that God didn't use his foreknowledge that God determined it. The only reason God has foreknowledge is because he's making it happen. That's what this word foreknew would mean. He made it happen, therefore he predestined. That's kind of the same thing. Predestining would be making it happen in their view. But whom he foreknew. God knows everything. 
and why would God put away his foreknowledge? God knows everything and makes decisions based on them. And notice what the predestination is of those who have loved God, that they would be conformed to the image of his son. The predestination is not who's going to be saved and who's not going to be saved like it is in Ephesians 1. But this is once you are saved, then you are part of the body of Christ and he has predestined everyone in the body of Christ to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among the brethren. All right. Now, let's talk about Romans 9 for just a moment. And then we're going to go ahead and move on. And as I said, you have follow-up questions here on this. You have passages you want to bring up. We'll stop. We'll take a look at them. Uh, we can do it today. It may take us a while to work all the way through this process and all of the passages. But Romans 9 says that God has made some vessels for honor and some vessels for dishonor. And he's talking to the, the people of Israel who believe that they are saved because they are Jewish. And he is going to go on to say those who are saved are those who believe in Romans chapter 10. If you believe, confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. And so God says, East Jacob I have loved and Esau I have hated. And so they say that God chooses to love and hate people before the foundations of the world. But the Bible doesn't teach that. Yes, the Bible talks about God hating people, but God loves the entire world. And God is love. And the definition you find in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 on the all applies to God. God is patient. God is kind. It would not be kind to create someone and not give them uh, the right to be able to choose. Just to arbitrarily say, I'm not going to give you life. That wouldn't be kind. And so why then does God hate someone like Esau? Well, we get an idea here in Hosea 9.15. All their wickedness in Gilgal, for there I hated them. It was in Gilgal with their wickedness that he hated them. He didn't hate them before that. Because of the evil of their deeds, I will drive them from my house. I will love them no more. God had loved the people that were there. But now the wickedness in Gilgal, God says, I will love them no more. And their princes are rebellious. So, and there's another passage that says, God began to hate the wicked. It says that God hates all, all those who love violence because God loves everyone. When someone starts doing violence against someone else, then God ends up hating that person. So people can make choices and go down roads where they put themselves on the side of the hatred of God. But when it says God made some vessels for honor and some for dishonor, automatically they think that God just chose randomly, whoever he wanted to choose. And they might not like the word randomly, understand that. I'm just trying to describe it the best I can. I'm not a Calvinist, I've never been a Calvinist, and so I don't know how they would exactly explain it. But they say that God just chose one for honor and one for dishonor. And then they'll say, who are you, O man? The passage says, who are you, O man, to speak against God? You're going to say God's a monster for doing that? Who are you? But here's what he's saying. God has chosen vessels of honor, those who believe in the name of Christ, and some for dishonor, those who don't. God gave us choices so that we could choose to love him. So we are not robots, just, just loving um, God, because we have to. And if we don't choose to love him, then we become a vessel of dishonor. And who are you to say to God that God can't make people to, to believe in him, the ones who are saved? So there's nothing in the Bible that says, everything in the Bible which would indicate that you have a choice, that you have a free will. In fact, in my view, when you look through the scriptures 
And you see the Bible says, choose you this day whom you will serve. God commands men everywhere to repent. Call on the name of the Lord and you will be saved. So the Bible is showing us this idea of free will. And if it isn't, if God hasn't given us free will, then the scriptures look deceptive to me. And I'm very careful in the way that I'm saying this, but the scriptures look deceptive. And so, yes, I believe we have free will. And I don't believe that it is meritorious. I am not a Pelagian. I am not a semi-Pelagianist. I don't believe that, that, that we make the first move. I don't believe that we have any part in our salvation. Uh, I'm, I'm not an Arminianist because there are things with Arminianism that I disagree with. And I know that those who are going to hear this are going to want to pigeonhole me in a certain way and try to say that I'm one of those, but I'm not. I know that I am depraved, not just not in the way that they use depravity. So for them, remember a different dictionary. For them, depravity means unable to be saved. For me, total depravity means I'm lost, I'm dead, I need Christ to save me. I need him to throw me out the rope. I just have to take a hold of it. I just have to receive it. That's the very lingo of the Bible. John 1:12. as many as receive him, to them he gives the right to become a child of God to those who believe in his name. All right, and I know that um, Kay had brought up last week that there's a lot in the Bible that looks like it's both ways. And that's true until you really start diving into the individual passages. There is a form of arguing for a position that overwhelms people. You just come with passage after passage after passage after passage after passage, trying to make your, um, your point. And there's so many of them that you feel like, oh man, it must be true. This is, I think it's a form of gaslighting. Instead, and what I do when someone comes at me that way is I say, let's stop. Let's just take a look at one, one of your points. Instead of looking at you and going all over these, let's go one by one through them because they stand or fall one by one. A thousand mediocre bad arguments don't make a point. One, two, or three good, solid scriptural arguments can make a point. So when someone overwhelms you and tries to just hit you with a lot of things or people say general statements like, well, the Bible teaches Calvinism, therefore Calvinism is true. The only reason I believe in Calvinism is because the Bible teaches it. You understand, I would say the only reason I believe in a free will is because the Bible teaches it. And so we have to go back and look at the passages to be able to see which one is which. Now, if you want a lot more information on this, then there's a YouTube channel called Soteriology 101 and it's Dr. Layton Flowers. And um, he's gonna come out to our conference and gonna do a defense on, um, on, on the free will, a, a defense on um, God making a provision for everyone to be saved. So we're gonna have him at our church in March at our conference. Um, but he's got so many good videos. If you are have questions about it, you can go over, you can look down his videos, take a look at what they say there and, um, and really get yourself informed um, looking against you know what the Calvinists say in these positions. And if you say, well, I wouldn't give that the time of day. Well, why? If you want to know what the truth is, why wouldn't you look at the passage to see what is said about the truth? All right. So I hope that's helpful. Okay. I see you here today. If um, that's not helpful, if you still have questions, then please ask a follow-up. And if you just have questions about this, I'm, I'm willing to talk all day just on this one topic. 
if that's the topic that you bring up. And I want you to know too, that you drive the direction of this channel. A while back, I was asked why I don't bring up more, um, more of what's happening today in the world, modern events uh, that would show us we're living in the last days. And the reason for that is I'm answering questions. I'm bringing a first question that I bring from somewhere else. Sometimes when a question somebody will ask me in the front of the sanctuary after teaching, sometimes the question at the end, that's most often what I'm looking for, a question that we can use for the next opening from the questions that are brought here. So Andre, back to his first position, has the first question. Andre says, what is the difference between the soul and spirit? We know there can be division between the soul and the spirit, Hebrews 4.12. So yes, Andre, thank you for your question. Um, this is difficult and we see it's difficult right away because the word of God is able to get in between the soul and the spirits and the joint and the marrow. Well, we have trouble getting in to both of those. And some say that we are a duality, that we are body, spirit, and soul. And the spirit and soul is the same person, same thing. It's our consciousness. It's our spirit. There is a passage in Thessalonians which talks about God working in our body, soul, and spirit. Along with the one in Hebrews 4.12, I believe that the soul, and remember, we're using English words to try to use Greek words and, and Hebrew words that are used over generations, Andre. So sometimes you'll have a, the word soul, and it's used in a context, obviously, of spirit. Sometimes you, you read spirit, and it's used as a context to talk about someone's consciousness. And so it's not as easy. And that's why scholars have a problem with this. It's not just e e so easy to say, well, every time the word soul is used, this is what it means. Every time the word spirit is used, this is what it means. Sometimes they're interchangeable. And they were interchangeable in the different cultures in the different centuries because all of the Bible was written over 1,500 years. And the meanings of words change. change. And so we've got to sometimes go back and take a look at it. And so someone who believes that we're a duality can go back and see spirit said one way and soul said the same way and say, see, they're the same thing. But someone who wants to say that we are, that we were three parts, body, soul, and spirit. And I believe that our spirits were dead before we came to Christ. And when we come to Christ, our spirits are, they come to life. I like the way the old King James used to put it. You are quickened. You are brought to life. Jesus said, you must be born again to enter into the kingdom of heaven. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. So the flesh has its consciousness, and then the spirit has to be brought to life. Jesus said, there's a time coming, and even now is, when those who worship me must worship me in spirit and in truth. And that's why you don't, general, genuine, gen, <laughs> you don't genuinely worship God without being born again because you can't worship him without your spirit being quickened or brought to life. And the Bible talks about that specifically. So yes, I do believe that there is a body, soul, and spirit because of the, the passage you brought up, Hebrews 4.12, and the one in 1 Thessalonians, and I don't remember where it's at off the top of my mind, but if you look up body, soul, and spirit, it should be easy enough to find, and that's the other passage. And um, those, are, those are my two witnesses, all right? So we have a question from Rod. Rod says, uh, when will the Isaiah 19, 16 through 25 and 25, 1 through 12 prophecy happen? After the rapture, Christ's reign? Um, I'm not sure, Rod, what these passages are. 
Um, let me just go here and see if I can see quickly. I don't want to take time to read all of those right now if I'm not familiar with it, um, with exactly which one of these prophecies are. Mind you, I've taught all the way through the Bible two or three times, but doesn't mean I can just instantly call up every passage that there is. Um, so this is, let's see if I can just look at the headings here, Egypt, Assyria, Israel, and Israel blessed. Um, that's Isaiah 19. Yeah, Isaiah 19, and you want to start in verse 16. So let's, let me just take a look at here. Um, yeah, in that day, five cities in the land of Egypt will speak the language of Canaan and swear by the Lord of hosts. One will be called the city of destruction. Uh, let me just go ahead and look up your other one really quick. Uh, I'm not going to be able to comment on that one because I just don't I just don't remember it. I'm going to have to do some some homework to really be able to remember it. Um, so 25.1. And let's just see what this one is. Um, <clears throat> oh, Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise you of the wonderful things you have done, the counsel you have done. Uh, yeah, sorry, Rod. I'm just going to have to pass. Um, sometimes when we're doing you know, a Q&A where you're talking about things off the top of your head. I just don't remember exactly what those prophecies are. I will take time to look them up here and um, talk about them in the future. In fact, Rod, I could use this as a first question um, in the future, taking time to be able to look these up and then talking about them. All right. So um, we have a question, a follow-up from Kimberly, Empress Kimberly says, follow up, hi, Pastor. Um, I'm from New Hampshire, right? My guess is it. Um, my guess is it's both chosen and free will. We don't have to understand, and I often don't. Um, yeah, I think that's kind of a way that we could look at it. Yes, God has chosen us, but I get to choose Him. It, uh, geez, um, the passage, the Bible says, "You have not chosen me, but I have chosen you to." Uh, do the works I've called you to do. So Jesus has chosen us to do his works. The Bible says in John 6, 44, no one can come to him unless the Father draws him. So God has to be drawing us. That doesn't mean he's giving us the power to be saved. I liken it to a marriage. Both have to say yes. God chooses and I have to choose. But his choosing me doesn't take away my free will. Many are called, but few are chosen. And again, we're talking about words uh, that are in a translation. And so we get confused. Well, what does called mean and what does chosen mean? God calls us. God draws us. And then we choose. It is, it is, it is both. But it's, but, it, but I have total free will. And, and I'm, I'm, I, and I have an understanding of it. I don't think it's too hard to understand. I think it's actually pretty easy, Kimberly, and that is that God has chosen us and loved us from the foundations of the world. And because God knows who will follow him becomes his, then when we follow him and we believe in him and we have faith, then God predestines us to be conformed to the image of his son. It's to me, it's not one of these things that are like, like the Trinity that is just so high above us, we can't understand it. I think that Calvinism, which is is only about 20% of Christianity, maybe, you know, I don't, that, I'm taking that number off the top of my head, just to say, it's not very much. It's not the vast majority of it. They're just really vocal in the day that we live. 
And it seems that people will kind of get into Calvinism and then after a while get out of Calvinism. And so people will start saying things like, yeah, it sounds like both because they might not have a good answer for the way they're presenting it with their with their definitions for their vocabulary. But when we come back to the proper definition of grace, of sovereignty, um, that then a predestination, then all of a sudden we go, okay, I understand it. God has given me a free will. That's it's a real choice. And there are real consequences to the free will that I've been given. And that's why I want to walk in wisdom. That's why the fear of God is so important. That's why the warnings in scripture are so important. Can you imagine God giving us, not giving us, giving us all those warnings to have them not matter? Telling us to choose right, to choose life when it doesn't matter? I think that makes no sense at all to me. And so I don't believe that it is not understandable. I think it is. God has chosen us. God draws us. God loves us. All of 1 Corinthians 13 applies to us. But then we either have to make a choice or not. We either receive him or we don't. Jesus said in John 3.26, I didn't come to, into the world to condemn the world. The world is already condemned. He's on a rescue mission. And you receive him to be rescued by him. He's not condemning you. You're already condemned because you have made decisions not to receive what he believes because we were born in a sin nature, but we have the right to call on his name and be saved. All right. So thank you very much. Um, uh, Kimberly, if you have more questions on follow up on that uh, of why you would think that and, and what I might be able to clear up or why I would believe it differently, I would love to hear your follow up um, question. Did the bones in Ezekiel rise again? Was this literal or uh, symbolic? Was this the resurrection of the dead? Thanks. All right. Yeah, Jari, thank you. No, the context of the dry bones in Ezekiel 30, what is it, 37, 36, 37? Um, it's in that section where God is restoring the mountains of Israel, the land of Israel, the people of Israel. And he looks at a valley and he sees dry bones. This is the nation of Israel in the last days. And God is going to bring their bones together. And he literally did that. He resurrected that nation. They were not a nation. God predicted that the land would be desolated, destroyed, that they would be scattered around the world. But in the last days that God would bring them back together, bring them into the land, make them established having power just as it's happened. And the dry bones are is a, is a vision, an example of Israel not only getting skin back on the bones, but weapons in their hands. And they are a strong nation today that started in 1900. Before 1900, there wasn't a large number of people in Israel. And then it started to grow. And then Israel became a nation in 1948. Then they protected the nation in 67. And then they did it again in 73. And today there's some 6 million uh, Jews who live in Israel. And the enemies around them want to destroy them. Russia and Iran are making pacts to destroy Israel and Israel still stands. So that's what the dry bones are about in Ezekiel is this wonderful prophecy that God was going to allow the land of Israel to become desolate, maybe even make it desolate for hundreds, a couple thousand years. And then he's going to bring them back into the land. Jesus said that Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. And Israel is in control 
of Jerusalem now, and more and more so as each year passes. And it says in Romans 11, 25, that blindness in, in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. So you have the time of the Gentiles ending when Jesus said it, and you have the fullness of the Gentiles coming in in the book of Romans. So that is the dry bones. It's phenomenal, Jari. You go, go and read from Ezekiel, whatever, when God, uh, when God uh, prophesies to the mountains, get ready for my people are about to come all the way through 40, beyond where we are now, because God is gonna bring them back in the land, but then God's gonna restore them spiritually and the temple will be rebuilt again. Those two things are still in our future. They are gonna receive Jesus as their Messiah. Zechariah 12, 10, I will pour out a spirit of mercy and grace on Jerusalem, and they will mourn for me as one who mourns for an only son. So God will give them grace and they will get saved when they look upon me who they pierced, it goes on to say in Zechariah 12, 10. And so they're, uh, God's given them that promise. It's an absolutely amazing thing to study, to know and to understand. We have some videos on God working with Israel. I wanna make some more videos on it because I think it's such an incredible, powerful prophecy. It happened in our lifetime. Now, most of us weren't alive in 1948, but I was in 67, I was in, in, in uh, 73. And I see God doing in Israel the work that he's doing today. So um, thank you very much for your question, Jari. Um, if you have follow-ups on that, the nation of Israel and that particular passage, it's a great passage, all right? So um, we have a question from Brianna. Brianna says, what is the difference between Christian and Lutheran? Thank you. All right, first of all, um, I would reword, reword your question to what is the difference between um, a Southern Baptist church or a Calvary Chapel Church and Lutheran, um, or what what we would generally believe as evangelicals and Lutheran. So, I, I Lutherans are Christians. Not now. I'm not trying to say that all of them are. I grew up in a Methodist church, and there are a lot of Methodists in that church that were Christians. But I got saved in that church by Methodists who were Christians. So God's working in the churches. All of the churches in Revelation, the dead church, the corrupt church, had overcomers in them. So the Lutheran church is, the idea is that they're part of the Reformation, right? And Luther pounded his uh, 95 thesis on the Wickenburg door and made a stand against the corruption within the Catholic church. There's a lot of corruption going on. The indulgences, and, and you can go and you can read what those 95 things were. Luther didn't reform everything that needed to be reformed. And so when you go to a Lutheran church today, they're going to believe the things that we believe. They believe something slightly different about communion. They believe uh, more reformed theology, which is what we were just talking about in extreme Calvinism. They believe more of the reformed theology. Uh, they um, are much more liturgical. Every church has liturgy. Calvary Chapels, the church I pastor, our, our, our liturgy is we come in, we stand up, we sing a few songs, sit down if you want to. A few people stand up and raise their hands during worship. Uh, we get up uh, and I address the people, pray over a scripture, teach the scripture, and then I have uh, a prayer, a closing prayer, and then an application prayer, uh, an altar call, application prayer, and then I bless the people before they go. That's our liturgy. Luther's gonna have a different liturgy. 
and if I'm if I'm correct, they are going through over the same thing in every Lutheran church in every place in their liturgy. Okay, which is, you know, what scriptures they're reading, what they're talking about and what they're reading. So, um, Brianna, I believe that that people that people in Lutheran church are Christians. Now, whether or not there are those in the Lutheran church that are not Christians that are trusting in maybe some of the things that are trusted in being Lutheran. Well, that's no different than some in Calvary Chapel that are saying, hey, I go to Calvary Chapel and I'm saved. What percentage of Lutherans are like that? What percentage of Catholics are like that? Because Catholics are Christians too. Um, what percentage of um, a Southern Baptist church or what percentage of a Methodist church or Calvary Chapel, a Calvary Chapel church are like that? And that we can't answer. Only God knows, which is why we, whether Lutheran or Catholic or Methodist, make sure that we have a right relationship with God from ourselves, not through whatever denomination we're in because denominations were not set up by Christ. When I first started going to Calvary Chapel, <clears throat> I was 22 years old. And on the back of every bulletin of every Calvary Chapel that I went to for the next decade, it had this statement on the back. It said, Calvary Chapel is not a denomination, nor are we opposed as such, but only to the division that has led to the separation of the body of Christ. So we are not opposed to denominations, but the divisions that have led to the division of the body of Christ. And my loyalty as a Christian, not even as a pastor, but as a Christian, my loyalty is to Christ. I'm a loyal guy. I'm a loyal person. And I am loyal to Calvary Chapel. But if Calvary Chapel is asking me to do something that, that isn't right or isn't biblical, then I'm not going to do it because my loyalty is to Christ first. And our loyalty should always be to him. So um, Lutherans are Christians. All right, Brianna, hopefully that is helpful. If that, um, if you want more information on that, then you can kind of, you know, hone in the nuances of your question and uh, we can go from there. So Annika says, good to see you, Annika. Uh, question, how to move on your relationship with God when you feel stuck and are doing all the right things? Uh, Annika, okay, great. I, I love this question. Um, who, after walking for a significant amount of time with God, doesn't have seasons where things are, are dry, where you feel like you're in a desert, or you may very well be in a desert. God may be taking you through a desert. How do you move on in this, in this relationship with God? How do you move forward in it? In the Old Testament, you could take the vow of a Nazarite. Uh, in the Old Testament, you would go to the temple, you'd make a sacrifice. That you could make a consecration sacrifice. Uh, you could, <clears throat> you could, there were things you could do to draw near to God, which is what I would say, Annika, that I would go to the passages that talk about finding God and being near to God. So James tells us, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Now, what if I don't feel like he draws near to me? Does that make what God said not true if I don't feel it? But if I draw near to him and he draws and then he draws near to me, and then the Bible says, cleanse, same passage, cleanse your hands, you sinners, purify your hearts, you're double-minded. So is there sin you have to repent from? I'm not saying there is. I'm not saying that every time you feel far from God, it's because there's some unconfessed, unrepentant sin in your life, but there could be. 
And so draw near to God and he will draw near to you. The Old Testament passage, which I know I quote a lot, Annika, delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. Are you delighting in God? Are you walking in the spirit? Are you endeavoring to do that daily? Are you drawing closer to him? That is gonna allow you, what well, well, God's word says, draw near to me and I will draw near to you. God will make a move towards us when we do that. And um, you could also ask yourself, if I, am I not delighting in God, but am I delighting in the world? And this is just a, an honest evaluation of yourself. Because I think if someone's gonna ask us this question, Christians, do you delight in the world? No, I don't. But if you evaluate your own life, is there a way in which you are delighting in the world? Is there a way in which you are not abiding in Christ and God's word abiding in you? Is there a way in which you're not walking in the spirit? Is there a way in which you're not drawing near to God? And when you do these things and you still feel at a distance, then you believe it. It's not by, by feelings. Does that say we're saved by grace through feelings? We're saved by grace through grace through faith. And so we continue to believe it. And sometimes you go through dry seasons in your life. There are different seasons. And the good thing about seasons is they have an ending. There's always a beginning and there's always an ending in whatever season that you're going through. And if you're in a dry season, then do those things, draw near to God, evaluate. I think sometimes God brings these things up because we need to evaluate. The psalmist said, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my ways and see if there's any wickedness in me and lead me in the way everlasting. <clears throat> he was willing for God to try him and to, uh, to search his heart as to whether or not there was any wickedness in him. All right. Thank you, Annika, for your question. I appreciate that. As always, uh, you can ask a follow-up to it, and we hopefully will have time uh, to be able to get to it. Uh, so really good questions today. I appreciate you guys, and I appreciate you keeping the chat on point. Uh, it's good to interact with each other and to laugh and have some fun, but it's also good to let this be a time of edification where we're looking at the honest questions that are being asked and maybe even being able to help it out because I might miss something that someone else might be able to help them out with. And I think that's good. So R. Richards said, R. R. Richard says, in the study you led on Sunday, when was Jesus answered by the Father? While on the cross? In Psalms 22, 21, thank you. Um, thank you, R. Richard, I appreciate that. Um, yes, I think he was answered on the cross. So I think when, so in Psalms 22, you see Jesus crying out in the beginning, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from hearing me? And then he talks about those who are surrounding him that want to destroy him. They're shooting out the lips at me. My, my tongue clings to my jaw. I cry out in the daytime. I cry out at night. You don't hear me. Why won't you answer me? You answered the, the people of Israel. Why don't you answer me? And then he says, you've answered me right in the middle of the Psalm. And then he talks about Jews being, uh, the nation of Israel being saved, uh, Gentiles being saved and a people not yet being born. And then he says that he has done this at the end of it. So I think that in his confusion, in his, um, and some might really think it blasphemy that I call, say that Jesus is confused on the cross, but he's fully human. Being fully human, the blood loss, the electrolyte difficulties, the shedding of the, um, the, the beatings that he endured, all could cause shock and confusion. He's fully human. He's not a superhuman. He's fully human. And so on the cross, he experienced some confusion. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yes, pointing to Psalms 22. 
but also having that genuinely happen to him. And then you have answered me. And then it says, knowing all things were fulfilled. Now he's been answered and now he's back in his right mind. He says, I thirst. They give him the sour wine to drink. He cries out into your hands. I, or he cries out, it is finished. And into your hands, I commit my spirit. Now the confusion of that moment has been gone. He has been answered. He knows why God has spoken to him. And I see that happening on the cross. And by the way, there's a reference to the resurrection there in um, Psalms 22 as well, which is pretty phenomenal. So thank you, um, R. Richards, for that question. And this Q&A is a supplement to the teaching ministry at Calvary Tucson Church, that we can follow up on the questions that we have. I wanna be able to provide a time when you can listen to something, have questions like this, and then be able to follow through with them and ask those questions. So I appreciate that. Um, so yeah, there's some things here, Keith, I'm sure you see them that need to be deleted. Um, so Susan has a question. Um, oh yeah. So Susan has a question, doesn't Calvinism eliminate the need for evangelism? So this is the thought. If God chose from before the foundations of the world, someone to be saved and someone to be lost, then as a Calvinist, should I be motivated to evangelize? Now, if you are to ask them this question, they're gonna talk about a few Calvinists in the past who did great missionary work, and there certainly are. So we realize you can't paint with a broad brush, that you can't say every Calvinist thinks this way because they don't. And there are some that have a great heart for evangelism. Others will say, well, the process is ordained by God as much as saving someone is ordained by God. The process still has to take place and the process is through salvation. And that's why Paul says in Romans 10, how can they believe unless there's a preacher? And how will they be saved unless, how will they hear unless someone goes? And so they say the process has to be done. And so if you ask them, if you're, if you hear in a debate their response to this question, they're gonna tell you that they every bit as much believe in evangelism. Now, my personal experience with a Calvinist is that they are more concerned with persuading non-Christians, excuse me, non-Calvinists to become Calvinist than they are about the lost. And I'm saved, even by their standards. Most of them don't kick us out of the kingdom. Most of us, most of the, the Calvinists will say, no, you're saved. You just don't believe in Calvinism, but you should. But then God foreordained before the foundations of the world for me not to believe in Calvinism, because I don't believe in it. So if I don't believe in it and God predestined and determined everything, then I don't believe in Calvinism because he foreordained me not to believe in Calvinism, if Calvinism is true which I don't believe it is. So I think it does affect their evangelism. I'm just speaking from my heart. I think their evangelism is affected. I think if I know I'm giving people a chance to receive Christ, then I am giving opportunities at the end of every service to know the Lord. And I'm not saying anybody who, everybody, everybody who does that doesn't really have a love for the lost. Personally, it's why I do it. I think it should be done. 
at a church that I would pastor. Now, I'm not going to tell someone else how they're supposed to pastor their church, but a church I pastor, I want to give people an opportunity to get saved. And so we do an altar call every week. We go out and street and street witness. We put on classes that help people learn how to evangelize friends and family. We give them opportunities to invite them to church where there's going to be a clear cut message of the gospel. A Calvinistic church for the most part doesn't do that. I'm not saying they don't all because there, there's certainly will be the outlier, right? I don't want to paint, paint with too broad of a brush, but I do think that this is a valid statement. Calvinism eliminates the need for evangelism. Calvinism eliminates the need for evangelism. I think that's a true statement because they're already chosen no matter what I do. So the need isn't there. I'm not saying they don't evangelize. I'm simply saying it eliminates the need for it. I think that's a true statement. Why, why do I need to evangelize if everybody is already chosen before the foundations of the world? And God has foreordained for me to be the one to, to witness to them. So if I don't witness to them, God foreordained someone else to do it. So why do I have to do it? And I think that when you talk to Calvinists, you talk to non-Calvinists who were Calvinists, they will tell you that it affected the way that they believed. I have heard Calvinists who are no longer Calvinists talk about evangelism and the way they felt about it when they were a Calvinist. All right. Again, um, I'm not saying Calvinists aren't Christian. I'm just saying most Calvinists today are that extreme form of Calvinism. That's just where we're going. It's just what we what we find today. There are certainly those who are not. All right. So I, I, um, I appreciate that statement. And I think uh, that's very thoughtful when you look at that. Um, I mean, let me read this here. Is it that God before time new? All right, so let's um, let's bring Kay in here. So Kay asked the question originally at the end of our last um, Q&A. So Kay says, is it that before time God knew who would and wouldn't choose him? So hardened hearts were a choice, but he knew that they would never choose him. Example, Judas would walk with God and still, um, and still rat it. <laughs> yeah, um, I think that's a good way to put it, Kay. I would put a little bit differently in a couple of ways. Um, is it that God chose? Uh, so Calvinists will mock us. But, um, I'm trying. Matt Chandler says, as he's pretending he's a provisionist, God looked down the, the tunnel of time and God saw that a person was going to save him. So God reached through time and chose that person and predestined him to be. So he kind of will mock us that way. Well, how come we have to be looking down a tunnel of time? How do we know how time works? God created time. God lives outside of time. God sees everything at once. He knows who chooses him and who doesn't. He knew it in a moment. He knew it when he had, before he even created the world. He didn't have to look down the tunnel of time. God knew who would do it and who wouldn't do it. I liken God having a different view of time to a parade. If I'm standing on a corner in a parade and there's a float coming, the Macy's float is coming, and the um, Charlie Brown float has already gone by. Okay, that's my time frame. Charlie Brown has gone by, the Macy's float is on its way. But then I got the radio on and the blimp's up above and the blimp says, oh, the Macy's float just broke down. And I look down and I go, how do you know that? Because from my perspective, being in the parade, I can't see it. 
But the perspective of the balloon is to see the entire parade at one time. He can look down and see the Charlie Brown um, float going and looks and sees the Macy's float broken down, which I can't see. So he predicts it's going to be 20 minutes before the float comes by. So 20 minutes later, it comes by and I go, how amazing. He knew exactly when it would happen. That's why God says, I know what's going to happen in time. So yes, God knows who will choose him because he knows everything. This brings us to the debate of open theism. There are some people who believe that God doesn't know everything. That's a whole nother conversation uh, that we can have. But, uh, but yes, that's exactly it. God knows who would choose him. And so God chooses them. That's why I said to his disciples, you haven't chosen me, but I've chosen you. Jesus, uh, Jesus said, not everyone you gave him, gave me, I, I didn't lose any except for the son of perdition. So there was that one who made a choice to, to walk away, to rat him out, as, as you put here, Kay. So I, I think that that is a good example. That's exactly what we're saying. Very, very, very much so. And even though Calvinists like to mock us for saying that, I'm not looking down, I'm not putting God in a tunnel, looking down. God knows it all in a moment because he's standing outside of time and God knows everything uh, that is there. All right, so thank you very much for um, bringing that up. Um, a panist, <laughs> okay. Um, I don't think I am, Jari. Jari says I'm a panist, I don't think I am. If I'm thinking what you are thinking, if I'm thinking what you're thinking, a panist is. All right, so I appreciate that. Uh, go back here and look, Scott Richards does that. I'm not sure what that's a reference to. Uh, I wish I could understand this, but I believe God has to reveal it. There's passages for both, but not a big deal other than I've always wondered, that is, God knows what he is doing. Yeah, and I'm, I'm going to say, Kay, that I don't believe there are passages for both. I believe the Bible teaches free will. And I would, if you have a passage that you believe teaches that God chooses and you don't have free will, then bring the passage up. Let's look at it. This is my, this is what I said earlier. When someone hits you with a barrage of things and there's 20 statements they make and you just go, wow, well, that's overwhelming. I guess it must be true. But if you break down each one of them, look, if there are two or three passages that clearly teach that God chooses people and didn't give them free will, then we have to believe that. The Bible is clear on what it's saying. It says what it means and means what it says. And that's not the conundrum. The conundrum is how can God reject someone by not giving them the ability to be saved and then condemn that person for their sin? When God was the one who gave him the will to do what they did, that's the conundrum. But okay, I would love to, um, Look up those verses. Let's talk about it next time we get together, okay? Look at those verses. See the ones that, that you are saying speak of God choosing people to be saved and not giving them free will. And let's take a look at them and see if they really say that. You know, I, I up in the corner here, it says Truth Quest, Truth Quest podcast. We really are on a truth quest. And if Calvinism is true, if there are passages that say that God chooses people before time and randomly chooses who's going to be saved and who's not going to be saved and it's arbitrary and it's his choice and nobody else can say anything and God hates certain people and loves other people. 
hey, I'm, I'm, I'm there, okay? I'm there, but I don't think it is. And I've spent a lot of time on this topic. And I don't see passages that teach that God predestined people to be lost or predestined them to be saved. And I would love to talk about them. I would love to look at what those passages are. I may just start picking the Calvinist passages that they cover because there's five or six of them that they cover. And I might just do, I don't know, six studies in a row where we talk about every one of their main passages. I talked about one of them in Ephesians chapter one, where they say God chose us before the foundations of the world to be in him, but he's talking to the faithful in Christ. That's context and context is everything. So if you're faithful in Christ, God has chosen you before the foundations of the world, which is what we're talking about. So I hope that helps you to understand, Kay. And I, I, I don't mind taking a lot of time on this topic. It's such an important topic. I would love to, to discuss it and talk about it until we get it all hashed out. And it's okay to say, I, well, I just don't believe that. I believe differently. It's okay to do that. But I would love to look at the passages that you say the Bible says both things, because I don't see it. I don't see passages that say the other thing. All right. So I appreciate, I appreciate that. All right. Um, let's see. Question. Uh, we have a question from Cat Lou. Cat Lou says, uh, is it possible that Christ stops pursuing those who reject Jesus and pursued evil like Biden? <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. Uh, let's just take, let's just leave Biden out of it for this, for this particular point. All right. Um, is it possible that Christ stopped pursuing those that reject Jesus and pursue evil? Yes. There, there could be a point where you go so far that God is no longer going to pursue you. The scribes and Pharisees did this. And Jesus started not talking to them plainly. He started talking in parables. People often think that parables are there to help us understand things better. But parables were given to hide the truth so that they would not see. And the Old Testament said that. So yeah, there are people who pursue evil and get to a point where they cross a line. And we don't know how far that line is that they cross. As far as Biden being evil, um, yeah, I, maybe, maybe he's confused. Maybe there's dementia, who, who knows? What I do know is that we're told to pray for our leaders and I'll encourage you to pray for Biden. Pray that he would make good choices. Pray that he would do good things for this country. Pray that if he is having problems now, cognitive difficulties, that, and I, it seems like he is, that God would touch him and heal him and allow him to make good decisions. And when he's making decisions that are against God or against the unborn, that God would turn him back from that. Okay? So thank you, Kat. I do appreciate um, that question. Uh, being from New Hampshire is not free will. That's, uh, I like that, Andre. That's really good. Um, so we have a question from Jeff. We have just a couple of minutes left. I'll take a look down here at some of the questions to see if we can pick something out for next week. Jeff says, did God create Lucifer as an angel who was imperfect? How is it that Lucifer could choose to repel, rebel without having an imperfect state of being? Maybe this question, Jeff, could be asked of Adam and Eve as well. Did God create Adam and Eve perfect? 
but had the choice to sin so that they did not have the sin nature when they ate of the fruit being tempted by the devil. And Satan was puffed up in pride. Sin was found in him, the Bible says, that he was, if I'm, if I'm remembering right, I'm going to quote this, and I might need to look it up, or you guys may need to correct me on it. He was perfect in all of his ways until sin was found in him, is what the Bible says about Satan. By the way, the, the reference to Lucifer, Jeff, is a mocking reference by God. God says, um, how you have fallen, O oh, oh, morning star, son of the morning. Lucifer wanted to be the morning star. And, 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 and the word Lucifer is the morning star in Latin. And the King James Bible put Lucifer in instead of the morning star. Uh, there in Isaiah uh, 14, 12. And um, let me see if I can pull this up really quick to show you that. I know that this isn't your question. Um, but I just kind of want to um, make sure we have some clarity on this. And I'm going to bring up the, um, the Amplified Bible. So this is the Amplified Bible on the passage that calls him Lucifer. Okay. So it says, um, this is verse 12, how you have fallen from heaven. Oops. How you have fallen from heaven star of the morning, light bringer, son of the dawn. So that star of the morning is what is translated Lucifer. Let me see what this, um, let me see if I can see what this little dot here says. Um, many students believe have felt that the passage follows applies to Satan. Okay, so it's just, it's just telling you why we believe that that is from, from Satan. Um, let me go down and get past all that. That's good information, but I wanna get back to the passage. All right, oh, son of the morning, um, you have been cut down to the ground. You have weakened the nations, uh, king of Babylon. All right, so um, God is speaking to the king of Babylon and then breaks off to speak to, uh, and then breaks off to speak to the, um, to, uh, to Satan, which God mockingly calls the son of the morning. How you have fallen from heaven, O son of the morning. And that has been brought over to Lucifer. And I do love the fact that Lucifer is not even his name. So, um, yeah, I do believe that Satan was, was created perfect, just like Adam and Eve were, and then sin was found in them, and sin was found in him. So, how someone who was created perfect could have sin in their lives later on, like Satan, uh, is an interesting question. And some have bounced off of that to say, well, does that mean that we could make a bad choice? That we could be in heaven, and then sin might be found in us. And that could be something that is pretty scary. But um, let me just read your question here again, Jeff, make sure I got all of it. Did God create Lucifer as an angel who was imperfect? No, I, I believe he created imperfect. How is it that Lucifer could choose to rebel without having an imperfect state of being? Um, because I think that he still had a choice. I think God creates creatures with choice. And he still had a choice, just like Adam and Eve had a choice. And Adam and Eve chose the wrong decision. All right. So um, thank you guys for joining me today. Uh, I see... Um, I see, yeah, keeping it real, uh, quotes 1 Timothy 2, 4, who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. That's also in Peter, um, when he's talking about why God is a slack in his promises, God desires all to be saved and all to come to the knowledge of the truth. So if God desires it, if God's going to get everything he wants because he's sovereign, then all men should be saved and all should come to the knowledge of the truth. But God has given men a free choice, so God doesn't always get what he wants. All right? Uh, so I see questions here about the Jehovah Witnesses and um, another question by Kay. So more questions, uh, Ken Liu, um, fun question. So 
I've got plenty of questions here. Um, I'll take a look at this. I'll look back and choose one of them for the next time. Um, you can join us um, later on. If this is your first time joining us, really glad to have you. Um, but if you, you can ask your questions again if I don't get to them um, next time, all right? So our next Q&A, Lord willing, will be Saturday. I look forward to seeing you guys there. We'll be covering one of these questions that we've had asked at the end of our Q&A um, next week. All right. Um, may the Lord bless you and keep you, make his face to shine upon you, be gracious unto you, and give you peace. That's the blessing that is the oldest pieces of piece of scripture ever found. It's 2,700 years old, dating back to the first temple period, the time of Solomon's temple. It is a silver scroll found in Jerusalem with the blessing on there of speaking God's name over his people. It's uh, absolutely exciting that that is the oldest piece of scripture that we have. And it's got Yahweh in it three times. It's got Y-H-W-H, the Tetragrammaton in it three times. And so, um, yeah, great stuff. All right, all right, God bless you guys. Love you, we'll see you later on.